I'm really glad that uh, I didn't know you when Star Wars first came out. Dude, Vader is Luke's father. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 50 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have Jameson Dance. Hello friends. We have Joe Eames. Hey everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm the only person on this particular episode whose name does not start with J. (laughs) We also have, I know I'm going to destroy this name, Uh, Jorn Zafferer. Hey, yeah, that's me. Uh, Should have practiced the last name too. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you should pronounce it correctly for us so we know. Jorn Seferan. All right. Well, I can say Jorn, so I'm going to stick with that. Um, yeah, that works. Do you want to introduce yourself for the people who aren't aware of who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm a freelance software developer since a little bit more than two years now. I'm involved a lot in the jQuery project and have been involved in that for years. So far, I'm the only a uh, person on the board of directors of the jQuery Foundation outside of the U.S. And uh, for the jQuery project, I'm working mostly on jQuery UI and the testing tools. So for jQuery UI, I'm one of the lead developers along with Scott Gonzalez. For the testing tools, I'm, I'm leading that team. So I'm trying to uh, get contributions from other people in so that things move along. Even if there's, there's usually much more work to do than I can handle myself. So trying to my best to get open source going there. So you work on jQuery UI and QUnit? I'm working on the jQuery UI and the testing tools, which involves QUnit and a few other things. Oh, okay. um, QUnit is the one that's actually featured on the jQuery sites. We also have test swarm and some even smaller tools that eventually should get there as well. It's, they are much more in flux than QUnit is. Interesting. So uh, we brought you on the show to talk about QUnit. Um, sure. Uh, Joe is kind of our testing guru um, as far as JavaScript goes. Is is QUnit just a unit testing framework, or do you provide other tools for um, like integration with a backend or, or other libraries? So QUnit focuses mostly on unit testing, but people usually end up using it for other things as well. I heard a story where someone was using QUnit to do performance regression testing. So you can do that with QUnit. It's pretty customizable if you want to. But the focus is very much on testing JavaScript libraries within the browser. So so it's mostly browser-based? Yeah. That, that's the, the focus, and that's basically where all the like new features and improvements go to. So, that, for example, within Node.js, there are a lot of alternatives uh, which make more sense within Nodes. So that's not something that we focus on. Okay. So QUnit, before the show and before the intro, when you gave us a little bit longer explanation that I'm going to ask you for in a minute, all I really knew about QUnit's origins was that it came out of jQuery one way or the other. Do you want to explain where QUnit came from? Sure. So QUnit 
the, the code base was originally written by John Resig as part of the starting uh, jQuery itself. So in 2006, uh, he figured that using unit testing is useful, especially for a complex library like um, like jQuery, where having automated tests that can just run in multiple browsers is pretty useful. And in early 2006, when I got involved in, in jQuery, my first contribution was actually to write more tests because the coverage was like 2% or something. And later I worked on the Ajax module in, in jQuery. So it was like second half of 2006. And I extended a test runner there to actually make async testing possible. Like originally it didn't support that. And how recent was that? Was oh, you're, you're still talking about the internal jQuery stuff before QUnit. Yeah, so that was oh, okay. before QUnit actually existed. As such. Sure. So th there was just the code base. And then in 2008, uh, I think I suggested to John to actually make this a standalone project and then gave it the name QUnit. was like the Q from jQuery and the unit from JUnit. And I wrote the documentation to just document the API and we moved the code around inside the subversion repository that we were using back then so that other projects could start using it. So jQuery UI already existed then. We used it there. Um, jQuery Mobile would later start using it, and other people could start using it. It wasn't really promoted anywhere on the jQuery site. It was just a page on the wiki. A little later, I think 2009, uh, John did the rewrite to actually make QUnit independent of jQuery. Originally, QUnit itself was using jQuery to do all the DOM stuff. You get rid of that dependency, which means there's now more DOM handling stuff inside QUnit, but it's it doesn't do that much, so it's still pretty sane. And yeah, pretty much since I gave it the name, I also kept maintaining QUnit. And since last year, we actually now have a proper website at qnitjs.com and it's nice API documentation and more like tutorials and stuff. There's actually one chapter from the jQuery cookbook that I originally wrote for the book with also with Scott Gonzalez. And that's now as a page on the on the J, uh, on the QUnit website. Nice. Cool. It's a good introduction if you get started with QUnit. My favorite part of this podcast is gonna be finding out why you named it QUnit. <laughs> podcast has yeah. only just begun. There's plenty of time for more favorite parts. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but that's pretty much the story behind the name. I mean, um, you already pronounced it correctly. Sometimes people say QNIT, but that's not right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Since it came out of jQuery, I was thinking jQuNIT or something. I don't know. QNIT. <laughs> It'd be awesome. So I've, I haven't used QUNIT in a project, but I've been looking over the documentation a little bit just to prepare for this. And one thing okay. that seems interesting that... It, um, isn't as common or as easily accessible in other frameworks is it looks like QUnit has built-in support for actual HTML fixtures for your tests. It, it, am I correct about that? Or Yeah, so that's actually a pretty useful feature of QUnit. The idea is that um, let's say you're, you're writing a jQuery plugin and that works on some amount of existing markup. For example, jQuery I widgets Let's say the autocomplete, you start with an input element, that's it. So you would just put an input into the QUnit fixture, which is just an element with the ID QUnit-fixture. And then QUnit will take care of resetting that 
that markup or that element after each test. So you can, in each test, you can start with that same element and you don't have to worry about uh, like providing the markup. So you provide the markup in your test and it goes inside that QUnit fixture div and then gets yeah. wiped out between every test? It's right. not quite so inside the test, it's inside the HTML page that runs your test. Yeah, that, that's, that's a better description. So uh, you can either have markup in there inside the HTML file or each test can just put something into that element and don't have to worry about removing it later because that's what QUnit does for you. But it's oh, okay. not a requirement. If if you leave out that that element in your HTML file, then QNet will, will won't bother with it, and just you have to provide. If you actually have markup that you test against, you just have to provide that yourself. So um, one thing that I've I've noticed is that in a lot of cases, in a lot of the languages that I deal with, um, there seem to be two kind of schools of thought around unit testing and testing in general, and so uh, there are usually libraries that take one approach or the other. So QUnit, like JUnit and some of these others, uh, takes the approach of giving you an assertion. So you have like the equal assertion and you give it um, the expected value and the actual value and um, an error message and then it will, you know, put up the error message and tell you that the, the assertion failed if it doesn't match. And then you have the other... Um, the other way of looking at things like Jasmine, where you have some kind of thing where it's like expect true dot to be whatever. Do you see any major advantages to using uh, the assertions as opposed to the expectations? So, I mean, both styles are, are valid. Uh, some people prefer the one or the other. There are actually two uh, add-ons for QUnit, which basically wrap QUnit and give you this Behavior-driven style. Um, I think you can. We have show, uh, show notes, so we can provide links to those. They also on the QUnit website under add-ons. So Spacket and Pavlov both provide BDD-style testing APIs on top of QUnit. So far, like there, so like enough people who like QUnit just the way it is, myself included. Enough people like the BDD style. Either they use something like Jasmine or uh, used one of the add-ons and still have the underlying QUnit. So I, I don't have strong opinions about those. I, I prefer the, the simple like third style that JUnit had. Sometimes people complain about that if you use, for example, jQuery's equal method, then you have to remember that the actual argument comes first and the expected argument comes second. Like with the, with the BDD style, the API is suggest which one is which and you don't have to remember the order but this is like you look it up once you remember it and if you get it you look it up again and then you probably remember it and that's it like it's not something that you actually have to bother with more than twice so my my problem with that is that if i use a server-side one that does it the opposite way then it's hard when you're going back and forth on a single project i've got caught by that a bunch of times yeah, that that can be annoying. But that, that's why I mean, you use Rails on the back end. <laughs> Good so, idea. But, but I think if if you take all these search libraries from different frameworks, uh, there's no consensus of which, uh, like which, uh, in which order the arguments should be. So usually you end up with saying, like, let's make the methods in a way where the order doesn't matter because you say expect this to be 
that's it's it's not ambiguous. So one thing that I want to point out here, because uh, I I got in here and uh, I realized that there are a few of these assertions that I really really like that I don't have in some of the other tools that I use. For example, the deep equal. That's cool. Yeah, deep equal is pretty useful. Um, it allows you to pass in any objects, and then we'll try to figure out if there's anything inside that object that doesn't match. So it doesn't just compare the identity like the regular equal or strict equal will do. It actually looks inside the object. And th this is something that originally someone, uh, I think his name is Philip, uh, contributed. There's a big, pretty big test suite attached to that. So QUnit actually uses QUnit itself to test a lot of its own features. And the deep equal unit tests are pretty extensive. They cover like cyclical dependencies where one object points to itself on a leaf and compares like functions and regular expressions and dates and whatnot. So it's really useful if, uh, to just compare any objects where you don't just want to have one line for each property that you care about. Mm -hmm. So I guess, I guess that's one question that I have is if you have two objects that effectively define the same function but don't use the same reference to the same function, do they match on deep equal? Not sh exactly sure about functions. Like I, I don't have the implementation memorized for these details. But okay, what? Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, well, that, it'd be interesting to know. I'll just go check it out myself. One other thing I want to point out on the QUnit site that I really, really, really liked. Um, you have an intro to unit testing. Yeah. And the thing that I like the most about this is not actually telling people how to write unit tests. It's the fact that you make it, ref it there are like three or four refactoring stages through the through the tutorial. No, I guess there are just two. But you refactor it down to the point where it, you know, it's easier to manage, it's easier to think about, and easier to test. And, and it really kind of pushes people to think about that as they work through their examples and make sure that they match up um, with what's there. I, I just, I was really, really impressed with that. <laughs> yeah, so that's actually an article I originally wrote for uh, Smashing Magazine, and they agreed to a like, non-exclusive license so that I could later publish that article on the QNIT site. And th this idea started when I was actually sitting next to someone who was asking me about QUnit and the code he had was just embedded into the page. And it was pretty, cl I think, pretty close to the example that the article uses. And I figured like, explaining how to refactor your code to make it unit testable would be really useful for a lot of other people. So the, the code samples are somewhat convoluted, but I think the example itself is still pretty, pretty nice. Just to, to yeah, give an idea awesome. how you can... To, to get started with actual unit testing, which is not so much about learning the framework, but just figuring out how to actually make your code unit testable and refracting is a big part of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to pick it for this show because we're talking about it, but I'm probably going to wind up picking it for Ruby Rogues and stuff just because just I love the way that this is put together. It, it, yeah. It's self-explanatory, and it really does drive home, look, it, it makes the code better, it makes it easier to, to manage and understand. You get tests around it and you know that it works. I mean, there are just huge, huge benefits to this this way of approaching a programming problem. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I have a question. Testing frameworks in JavaScript are proliferating 
and and there's more every day and it seems like every time someone runs into a little hiccup with a testing framework they think the best solution is to write their own so there's tons of them out there why use QUnit instead of one of the many other ones out there so there's actually a Stack Overflow question which I once answered and I think I'm getting a lot of Stack Overflow reputation from people just uploading that uh, oh, was nice. asking you can like trade those in for yeah, uh, so, bitcoins right <laughs> yeah <unfortunately, laughs> I think that works so the question was, should I use QUnit or Jasmine? Like those are, seem to be the two mo most popular choices. <clears throat> I, and I wrote that. So one big argument for QUnit is that it's really easy to get started with. Like it's you just take these two files from QUnit, one JS, one CSS file. You add a diff with an ID of QUnit, and then write a test, and that's it. You don't need to set up any reporters. Uh, there's nothing else that you need to do. So. And we actually recently did a, did a survey for QUnit to figure out what people like or don't like about QUnit, what we should add or remove. And the ease of use was basically the one argument that everyone mentioned that they really like that. So Agreed. otherwise, Jasmine has the BDD style syntax. If you don't want to use QUnit with, with a wrapper, that might be a good idea to just uh, start with Jasmine. They have certainly have other features that QUnit doesn't have. and didn't ever really use any other frameworks, so I'm not the best person to ask about those. There's probably other people that have more experience using a wide range of testing frameworks. I mean, both probably get the job done, so, you know, it, they, if, if you have people already familiar with Jasmine, that might be better to get started with. Um, one thing I might mention, maybe, so the uh, Amber JS team, like Yehuda and uh, I think Tom Dale and whoever else is on their team, uh, they keep telling me that they really like uh, QUnit because it's so freaking stable. Like it does exactly what they they wanted to do, and it, it does it really well. And Yehuda also has the given advantage of if if he comes up with a feature request, um, I, well, I I care about his his ideas. So uh, if, if they're reasonable, then there's a good chance that they actually make it into QUnit, which generally applies to to every feature request, but. Uh, I guess Yuda has a certain advantage there. Yeah, it helps if you're on the if you're on have the jQuery connections, probably. I think there's another <laughs> uh, big advantage that QUnit has over the others, and that is uh, most of the others, um, certainly the uh, ones that are pretty popular, which I would lump Jasmine for sure, and I think Mocha's gaining a lot of popularity. Um, although Mocha's really really flexible in this, but QUnit by default has the uh, non-BDD style, and that actually typically simulates what server-side testing frameworks use. Most server-side testing frameworks, JUnit, uh, CSUnit, um, the other .NET ones, those are using Ruby the non-BDD style. Ruby has many test and test unit. Right. Okay. Right. So it's, it makes it more familiar. If you're, both, if you're not just writing JavaScript, if you're writing server-side and client-side code, you don't have to switch your brain context. I know, I know there's plenty of BDD style frameworks for the server side too, but it just I think the non-BDD style ones are more common. Yeah. The other thing that I, I really, that appeals to me out of QUnit is the fact that since it came out of jQuery, it's designed to work with jQuery. And, you know, most of the other frameworks, they work fine with jQuery, but the fact that it's, you know, part of the jQuery suite of tools that are out there, you know, it does have that where, you know, you can pretty well count on if you're writing DOM-related code, QUnit will probably test it well. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I don't know of any particular issues with other framework in that regard. But for example, the fixture thing that we talked about, that's very dumb focused and wouldn't make sense on the server side. So that might be a good reason to use QUnit. There's actually a few features that I hope other people will pick up and put into their own frameworks that might currently be specific to QNet. I haven't actually checked if someone else does this, but there's uh, like some details inside QUnit that you don't notice until you really use it for a long time or at least more than just a few hours. Like QNet tries to be as, as useful as possible to help you be efficient with uh, your development. So for example, when, when a search fails without actually throwing exception, just something goes bad. Um, actually, I need to skip back a little bit. So one important thing about QNet designs is that when an assertion fails, it doesn't actually throw an assertion error or assertion exceptions. Like, for example, JUnit does that, and I think a lot of other frameworks do it. So QNet just tries to go, go on, and as long as the code doesn't actually throw an exception, it tries to run the test uh, until the end, which means that um, you may, oh. may get more assertions that fail, which doesn't necessarily tell you more, but sometimes it's actually useful to see all the assertions run, and one of the later ones might actually give away uh, the actual issue, while the first one that failed might actually be pretty useless. So if, if, if it just fails as soon as something goes wrong, you don't know if everything else would actually have worked. And the thing is that as soon as something fails, QUnit tries to actually tell you exactly where that code is coming from. So even without an exception uh, being thrown, then QUnit tries to figure out Where's the assertion that you ran in your code and tell you which line in your user code is? If, if there's, if it's like nested, if you have a test that calls a method that calls another method and those go through different files and then actually provides you a stack trace with all those files. But because you don't really care where, um, like which lines of code within QNIT itself run, it will actually filter those out. So you only see your own code in, in the stack trace. And that's cool. That's really so, nice. Um, it doesn't try to like implement the stack trace stuff. Uh, like there's a library called stack trace.js or something like that, which actually like will download files and try to figure out where exactly the code is that just ran. Greenland doesn't do that. So in like IE 8, you don't get stack traces, but pretty much any browser that does support like extracting stack traces and generating them on the fly, um, uh, unit will make use of that. So that's one thing that makes development pretty pretty nice because once something fails, it's really easy to um, point out which lines you have to look at, like where's the search and that failed. And so there's there's a feature that actually required a, quite the big refactoring inside QNIT itself, which I, can't, I wouldn't say I stole it, but I get certainly a lot of inspiration for that feature from Ken Beck, who originally created uh, JUnit with, I think, Eric Gummer on the plane. So uh, he, he once built a tool, I think it was in the plugin for Eclipse, that will, would allow you, basically was it like JUnit runner inside Eclipse. And one big idea was that usually when a test fails, it's much more likely that it will fail again on the next run. While if a test passed, it's likely that it will pass again. So running those failing tests first, especially if they take very little time, gives you feedback much faster. In, in his tool, I think he actually built something where it would show you in your source file where something threw an exception. So like the edit integration, I figured that was too much, but I liked the idea of running tests that 
failed before. So what QNet now does, if session storage is supported by your browser, it stores when a test fails and on the next run runs that test first. So usually if you, if you see a test failing, you can just reload the page after fixing something and if it doesn't, isn't read again, then you know, okay, I fixed this. And then you can still wait for the, for the full suite to run to see if there's no other regressions. But usually it means if your test suite takes like, let's say a minute to run, which can happen after a few months of development, uh, your, the failing test will run first and then you get feedback much faster. And QNet also has this checkbox at, at the header, uh, where it says hide, uh, hide past tests. And that means hide everything that's green and only show failures. And if you combine that with the with the session storage thing, then you actually uh, get to see the failures first, and it just hides everything else. And you, it's very useful if you do like test-driven development because it allows you to focus so much more on things that actually went wrong, and you don't have to bother looking at this stuff that just went green. It's not on by default because it's uh, can be irritating if if it doesn't show any tests. But once you enable it, it remembers the, the checkbox and you can just reload the page and it keeps that state. That's really cool. I've seen I've seen them where basically it does that. It runs the failing tests or the failings um, test file. And then once once that passes, then it'll run your full suite again. Yeah, it's really cool. But and uh, the, yeah, it's really cool. The order in which it outputs the test is still the original one. Like it it only reorders the, the Let's say the runtime, so it runs the failing test first, but the output order is the same, so it doesn't. Um, like it's not distracting, so you don't have to find your test because now the order just suddenly changed. Yeah, Kent. I also really, really admire Kent. So anything you can attach his name to, <laughs> I'm, all, I'm all about that. <laughs> but that brings me to a um, big rant I have about JavaScript unit testing frameworks in general. And all of them are guilty of this, and that is the unit, the user interface, uh, ex the user experience for somebody using them. I think is just terrible compared, especially compared to the long-running uh, server-side test frameworks where you can like, oh, I want to run this test and this test and this test and these three tests and these five tests and make a session out of that and then just run those five. Right? Yeah. They none of them have that feature. That feature or. Um, nice ability to like collapse and expand tests and um, the keynote is probably the best at showing me the failing tests in Mocha. If you say, show me the failing test, you still, I mean, we have 420 tests right now in our unit suite, which is nothing. And still it takes me a ton of time scrolling around to find the freaking failing test, even if I check the, click the only failing tests. Okay. So Kuna um, actually has some filters. It might be not as flexible as what you're looking for. But uh, you can like just hide all the the past tests. That's something I mentioned before. Uh, right. You also, at least if, if you're using a newer versions of QNet, um, there's a select box at the top right that actually allows you to select the module to run. So in QNet, you you structure your tests and or like you put assertions into tests and then you put tests into modules. So for example, in jQuery UI, we have a module for some uh, option testing for testing methods for testing events and each one of those is grouped in the module and selecting module will run only the test within that one module you can also click the rerun link next to any test and then it'll rerun only that one test 
Right. Uh, and there's actually a, a wildcard filter where you can like put uh, into the URL of your test view, put there, uh, I think it's qnit-filter or just filter equal and then some value, and then it will only match tests that, that match that wildcard, which would allow you to like match tests from various modules if, that, if that's something that you're looking for. It's not necessarily quite as flexible as some other tools are, but um, so that's something that you actually would like, then uh, following an issue would, would be a good first step. Right. It's open source. You can always patch it and then hand it over, hand a patch over. Right. Um, just out of curiosity, I mean, I'm pretty familiar with, with a, a jQuery uh, unit. <laughs> but um, when you do the filtering, when I click on a module and it just runs the test within that module, is that just doing a name matchup on the name of the module? Yeah, pretty much. A string name. Yeah. So I, I've noticed this with uh, uh, some of the other ones. I, I haven't used QUnit in production in a little while. Um, but with the other ones that I've used, they do the same thing. It's just a string matchup. So if you have two modules, that one is basically, you know, like app, app module called app, and another one called app stuff. And I click on app, it'll run app and app stuff because app still matches app stuff. Right. You know? And so that, that could be another. You know, again, it's just that that those tools for the server side testing. People have been building those for a long time, and they're getting a lot more usage than they're getting out of client side. Very few people are testing client side, so yeah, it's true. There's definitely I mean, a lot better scenario. Yeah, so I'm actually not. It might be that Unit actually does a strict matching on the module name because um, originally we only had the the filter option that would always do wildcard, uh, right. but that's. Like the UI doesn't expose that anywhere. You can still use it. You find it, it's in the documentation, but the idea is mostly to actually use the well, the UI, what the UI exposes. I can't tell right now if it does a strict matching or not, but it probably should. Yeah. One one thing that I'm I want to ask about that uh, I've noticed with a lot of these frameworks is that you basically embed your tests into a web page and then you pull up the web page and it shows you which one's passed and which one's failed. And yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, does that integrate well with uh, continuous integration setups? So that's a fun topic. Um, and I mentioned, I think I mentioned earlier this uh, survey that we did for QUnit and um, so some people already use QUnit within continuous integration like Jenkins and other tools. Other people would like to use it but I don't know how and didn't want to spend the, the time to figure it out. So there are various options already, like all the jQuery projects use uh, Jenkins along uh, to like do continuous integration for their projects. They're like the simple solution and maybe the most popular is to use Phantom JS. For example, mm -hmm. you can use the Grand Contrib QUnit uh, plugin and that will just use Phantom JS to run your tests. PhantomJS is pretty nice on the one hand because it, it's uh, pretty close to an actual browser. It doesn't try to simulate it. Uh, and But now it's actually working pretty well. So it, it gets you somewhat close to, to an actual browser environment because it builds on top of WebKit. I think it's QT WebKit. On the, it's, on the other hand, it sometimes produces uh, failures that only happen within Phantom and the, the debugging those is, is really annoying. And it still doesn't cover all the issues that other 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 browsers have, but it, it uh, it's really to get running within like 
uh, Jenkins and other tools, and it works. Uh, it's, it comes pretty much pre-installed in Travis. You use that for open source projects. So that's that's really easy to set up. For the jQuery projects, we currently use a setup that's uh, currently at least slightly, if not a lot more complicated. Um, going to share a link for the show notes that describes that it's the, the article isn't quite up to date anymore, but the basic setup is still the same. So for jQuery, we use um, a tool called Test Swarm, which, as most of the jQuery projects, was originally started by John Resig. And we use that in combination with Jenkins as our CI tool, which just pulls uh, commits from GitHub whenever GitHub does a push notification and then uses Grunt to like do some basic testing, linting, using PhantomJS to run test ones. And then we'll submit the job to TestSwarm. TestSwarm is this kind of testing hub. So it accepts jobs and then browsers, which are the, the TestSwarm clients, can connect to TestSwarm. And when TestSwarm has jobs to run, then TestSwarm will distribute those to the connected clients. There are similar tools to TestSwarm, but I think TestSwarm is still the, the exception that it tries to just cover cover as many browsers as possible so that we can actually test uh, things in every browser that we support, which for jQuery, at least the 1.9, uh, like the, the non-2.0 branches is still a lot of browsers. In order to actually have enough clients connected all the time, we now use another tool called Browser Stack. This is a third-party platform. They uh, like sponsor open source projects, so you can use it for free. It's also really useful to do just day-to-day -to -day testing. For example, I use Browser Stack to do any testing in IE instead of jump starting a virtual machine on my own computer. They now also have support for mobile browsers, which we don't really use yet, but planning to, to make 